episode 329, Virtual First Healthcare Solutions, Their Promise, and a few outstanding questions. Today, I speak with Joe Connolly from Visana. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In a recent article in Stat News, TJ Parker, the VP of Pharmacy at Amazon and the founder of PillPack, explained that Amazon's plan to stand out in the pharmacy space is simple. In quotes, better selection, better convenience, and better prices. He added, it is really the Amazon playbook. Okay, better selection, better convenience, better price. The playbook of arguably one of the most successful companies ever, Amazon has decimated and bankrupted anybody standing in its way towards total market dominance. This same better selection, better convenience, better price trio, maybe with better selection inferred to mean getting the right care to the right patient at the right time, is the vision of many of the virtual first healthcare providers starting to pop up. And when I say pop up, I mean that in Q1 of this year, according to data from Rock Health, $6.7 billion was invested in digital health companies. Today, we're talking about the proliferation of these, in air quotes, virtual first healthcare solutions. Before we begin, though, let me just clarify that in our conversation today, virtual first doesn't mean virtual only. Most of the time, actually, virtual first means that the connective tissue of the operation is virtual slash digitized. In other words, we're not just talking about some random mobile app here. There are likely human providers involved. And the goal is to offer patients not only a sticky, engaging entry point and journey, but then also a continuous longitudinal care experience. The patient journey should be clear, and the virtual first solution is making sure that the patient isn't getting lost somewhere in their journey from diagnosis to better outcomes. Here's my main point. The big contrast between these newer virtual first solutions and traditional healthcare enterprises is that humans involved in these virtual first solutions are connected to each other and to their patients with technology designed for that purpose, as opposed to software and systems designed to maximize billing, which sadly many software tools and systems used in legacy healthcare were. The promise of these virtual first solutions is to fill care gaps for patients who are currently having issues. It sometimes takes 10 years for people to get properly diagnosed. Care for chronic conditions, also abysmal in this country. Now, this all being said, much of the promise of these virtual first, also called point solutions when someone is not a fan, has yet to be realized. Tune into my interview with Al Lewis next week for more on that front. One area of concern is that if you have a point solution for MSK care, musculoskeletal care, and a point solution for diabetes, and a point solution for mental health, you wind up with silos. PCPs have complained that they don't know what's going on with some of these solutions, and it makes it harder to manage patients. Here's my inadequate response to these two criticisms. Well, how many silos currently exist in the healthcare system. Like when a specialist gets a hold of a patient, do the specialists talk to one another, much less the PCP? If we're talking about an average here, I mean, sometimes patients have multiple PCPs even who I'm not exactly sure if they hold regular discussions. So if the status quo is the benchmark to beat, then at least with some of these 
virtual first silos. You have the patient getting longitudinal care within that silo. That's not the case with a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, with many specialists who at best manage one episodic or a series of episodic visits. On the other hand, consider that $6.7 billion of investment Some PE company there is looking for 4X on their investment. So 6.7 of PE investment means that they expect to get like 28 billion out of healthcare spend, meaning $28 billion paid for by patients, employers, or taxpayers. On the other other hand, 28 billion is a drop in the bucket compared to the almost $3 trillion that this country spends annually on healthcare. I talk about all this and more with Joe Connolly today. Joe is originally in medical devices and has created his share of digital health solutions. Currently, Joe serves as CEO and founder of Visana, a virtual first solution for women's health. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Joe Connolly, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. The term is virtual first. Right. So my my mind immediately goes to like the first encounter that the patient would have with said care continuum or or provider. What does that first interaction tend to look like? Is this something that reaches out to the patient as opposed to the patient having to show up someplace? I think the main modality when I think of the most convenient is going to be virtual or digital meeting people where they are, which a lot of times for young consumers might mean virtual, or it might mean in the home, particularly for more elderly consumers. So I think it just depends on the consumer that you're actually serving. Yeah, so it's interesting that we're using the term virtual first ecosystem, but it it almost refers to like virtual connective tissue more than necessarily the care setting. Exactly. That's correct. It's meeting people where they are and where they want care to be delivered. It does not mean virtual only. And do a lot of these entities that are starting to spring up that are billing themselves as virtual first, you know, would you characterize them as technology companies? I think that they're services companies at their core, but they are enabled by technology. In other words, they may actually have human (laughs) care providers. It's not like, you know, when we say virtual first, we're talking about some mobile app. Exactly. So most of the time, the humans are really at the center and creating that authentic connection, that human to human connection is really the goal of these virtual first providers. And they use technology as a way to scale that human to human interaction. So if we're talking about, let's just say someone in the target market, so let's just say a younger individual, maybe not digital native in all cases, but at least digitally savvy. So what does that first onboarding look like? If I'm a patient and I'm assuming the purchaser of them is a payer of some kind. So like, let's just say that I'm a patient and my payer, purchaser, employer, you know, whoever is shelling out the cash and rolling out these programs, what happens? How is it made known to me that this service is available for me based on some risk factor or something? Yeah, so I think most of the time, a way that it happens is a company like mine would actually reach out directly through the health plan or through the employer that we're working with to potential consumers that we would want to enroll in our program and do traditional marketing campaigns like direct mail, email, those types of things to actually raise awareness of the offering. I think more and more what we're seeing are companies realizing that this actually doesn't drive that much utilization of virtual first services. And so we need to come up with new ways to increase engagement with these services. So when I think back to the consumer and what they're actually looking for, we want to be there every touch point that they're having within their consumer journey. For us, a lot of times what that means is that women with our conditions aren't diagnosed quickly so they can have a diagnostic journey of up to 10 years. 
And so many times what they're doing in this time frame is actually Googling for answers and trying to figure out what their symptoms actually mean. And that's where we actually need to be meeting them and getting that very initial touch point is when they're looking through Google and trying to track their symptoms. And so we have products that actually meet them where they are with that specific need. I think the other way that we'll see this ecosystem evolve is actually driving referrals amongst virtual care providers and companies like mine working with all the other virtual care providers to make sure that we're cross-referring patients. And I think that we've especially seen this amongst what I call kind of front door companies. So companies like Grand Rounds and Doctor on Demand, Teladoc, Accolade, that really want to be the first call that patients go to whenever they have any type of issue. And so these types of companies are basically trying to give patients a free resource so that they have symptom checkers, triage capabilities, virtual primary care, and eventually navigate those members to the proper downstream virtual first clinic. So what you're talking about here is effectively increasing access, really, which is, you know, kind of a two-sided coin if you're a purchaser or a payer, because restricting access has frankly been a way to control costs. You know, whether people actually say that out loud or not is another story. But if we're increasing access here, if you're finding patients who may have an issue and then putting that patient into a care pathway, which potentially is going to drive care and thereby cost for a patient who may have done nothing for 10 years except Google, then does this appreciably raise costs? Yeah, so I think it's all about getting the right patient, the right care at the right time. And I think that's, I know everybody says that, but that's really the way that we think about it. So when we have that initial touch point with the consumer, we want to be providing low cost as possible care that's still cost effective and meeting them where they are. And I think what this enables us to do is build a long-term relationship with that member or that patient that then will enable us to effectively navigate them to the proper downstream care when necessary. And a lot of times the cost discrepancy in that downstream care can actually rationalize the entire cost of the other programs that are much lower cost to the payer. So ultimately what virtual first providers have to do is kind of thread that needle where they are effectively increasing access to care for the less acute patients and driving the cost savings from a smaller number of more severe patients by building that trust and enabling that downstream navigation. And it's candidly a tough thing to do, but that's the way the game that we currently have to play. When we're talking about making sure that the right patients attain what is probably going to amount to the preventative services or, or the care that they need so that they don't wind up in an acute situation. So you'd have to, at some level, be able to identify which amongst the patients were rising risk, maybe. Exactly. I think there's a big triage component to this. One of the things that you said is that you think that the rise of virtual is going to upend traditional care delivery. So is it something where virtual entities start to replace in-person care that's out there, you know, like your traditional local health system? Yeah, so I don't think virtual care will replace in-person care because a lot of what virtual care is currently doing is closing gaps in services that aren't traditionally offered by providers in a high-touch way. So things like high-touch nutrition services for irritable bowel syndrome, 
or cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain. Instead, what in-person providers are still left with are those high-margin surgical procedures. I think what virtual care providers are able to do and the promise of virtual care, which I think we'll, we will be able to obtain, but I'm biased because I'm running a virtual care company, is that we are going to be able to enable effective navigation that can force those in-person providers to effectively compete on quality and cost, which is something that they don't have to do today. So it might change the market dynamics, even if it's not replacing the services. But even if we're talking about closing care gaps, though, so you mentioned, for example, nutritional counseling. So that's tough to get, right? If, if you're a patient and you're surrounded by FFS providers in your local area, just finding someone offering nutritional services, having that covered by your insurance, I mean, it could be a full-time job just figuring out how to make that happen. But ultimately, if someone does get nutritional counseling and their IBS symptoms are considerably lessened, then you'd think that would mean less visits to their GI doctor and fewer drugs and fewer endoscopies or whatever else goes on there, right? So ultimately, the net effect, if these virtual first companies are in fact reducing downstream costs, and it's those downstream costs, you know what they always say, one person's expense is somebody else's profit. Like, it's the profit of those health systems is those downstream costs. So you definitely anticipate an impact at a minimum, right? What leading virtual care providers will do is actually try to work with those hospital systems to make sure that we are almost acting as the front end triage system and sending them patients that only need those uh, surgical procedures that are really driving a lot of their revenue. So we can actually help them drive a better revenue mix, even if we're decreasing the overall utilization of certain things like office visits. So when you say overall revenue mix, like what do you mean by that? For example, if a gynecologist that specializes in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery is spending about half their time on office visits and check-ins and about half their time on surgeries, the hospital system would actually make more money if that provider is doing 75% of their time doing surgeries and only 25% of their time doing office visits. Because if they're seeing fewer patients that don't need surgery, then they will be able to potentially increase their surgical volume in the short term. Yeah. I mean, assuming that obviously they could fill their day with surgical patients, I guess. Correct. Yes. But most of the providers that we talk to typically have pretty long wait times for a lot of those surgeries. You know, it's interesting how Kevin O'Leary, he writes a, a great newsletter on Substack. He characterized kind of some points that you were making. He said the, the virtual side of things has more to do with actually aligning a care delivery model with an economic model that allows for empathetic care and delivery that meets the needs of patients sort of irrespective of whether that care is done virtually or in person. And that does seem to be aligned with what you're saying or, or what I'm understanding you're, you saying, that we've got patients who are not necessarily being served by our existing healthcare system, costs going up, quality going down. At the same time, we have just dissatisfied, you know, people, patients, consumers, whatever you want to call them. But how does that economic model happen? How does this whole infrastructure sort of fit together in a way that the economic model is aligned? Yeah. So in order to actually have an empathetic care delivery, these virtual first providers are going to have to be unshackled from the fee-for-service CPT-based environment where revenue is maximized by in-person face-to-face encounters. And ultimately what that means is 
contracting directly with payers. And so if virtual first providers have to contract directly with payers, then they are de facto going to have to meet the needs of those specific payers, which ultimately means managing the overall total cost of care and moving towards value-based care models. It's interesting that this is a theme. We have Optum now employing more PCPs than anyone else in the entire country. So payers are definitely moving quickly into the provider arena. And it really sounds like with this virtual first ecosystem, this is another example of that. Absolutely. I think we're going to see more and more payers move into the provider space, especially in the virtual first space. And is the reason for that just simply that the existing model of traditional healthcare is so flawed and and just the rate of change is so slow that you have payers out there who are just like, I just got to do this myself. Is that the reason or are there other things at play here? I think that is part of the reason. But when we think about payers specifically, ultimately what they want to do is the for-profit payers at least is to drive additional revenue or increase their bottom line. And I think some of these payers are seeing virtual first care as new revenue stream where they can monetize creating and administering this virtual care network or to get paid for driving utilization of the virtual care services that actually reduce the total cost of care. So I think it could be a revenue play for these payers specifically too. So those payers go to an employer, the self-insured employer, who's the ultimate purchaser here, and they say, hey, employer, we're going to add an additional X dollars PEPM, and then you're going to get these other services. They're looking at it as a way to get higher revenue from their customers who happen to be self-insured employers in this case. Exactly. And the revenue model may or may not be a flat fee, like you mentioned, a PEPM or a PMPM, or it may actually be utilization-based where they get paid for the utilization of the services. If I'm an employer, though, one of the great criticisms of many of the economic models that have been put forth by some of these entities call them virtual first or just any of these more innovative care models or, you know, even the navigation services themselves, they indulge, let's just say, in trend inflation. You know what I mean? Like if you actually look at how they're claiming to save money, it could be considered flawed. For example, you have multiple point solutions that are all claiming they kept a patient from being hospitalized. Well, if you have six point solutions that all are claiming the full cost of some hospitalization and savings, stuff like that, for example. So if if I'm an employer and there's now this kind of proliferation of navigation services, but also point solutions, what's your advice having played in the space for as long as you have and being intimately familiar with it? What's your advice for an employer to actually sort of weed through this? I think that employers are overwhelmed with the proliferation of virtual first point solution offerings. And I think that they are actually now driving towards trying to adopt platforms that are going to have multiple point solutions integrated within them. And I think we are seeing the rise of companies like Transparent, which recently got a lot of funding, ShareCare, Grand Rounds, Amwell are eventually all going to turn into some sort of platform that they will then vet point solutions on behalf of employers and actually those entities will be responsible for the total cost of care. So they're trying to disintermediate that mechanism whereby multiple point solutions are claiming, you know, the exact same reduced healthcare utilization. And they're going to say, we'll do all of this vetting, we'll drive the utilization, and we'll be the ones ultimately accountable for that reduction in the total cost of care. 
I'm an employer and I am looking to, you know, create an environment where my employees can get care that is aligns with their actual needs, then I really should be looking for a risk-bearing entity that's going to help me navigate these waters because there's just so many nuances here. I mean, it's like negotiating a PBM contract. Like, <laughs> there's so much you don't know that can wind up costing a, a ton of money. Yes, absolutely. And I think another big area that these entities can provide value is the administration of these point solutions. So large self-insured employers might have 40 or 50 different point solutions that they're working with. And all of them want to do different marketing campaigns to the point that we made earlier. And that can be overwhelming from the employee's perspective where they're getting multiple communications from multiple different vendors and they're not sure who to go to when. And so ultimately, I think the value of the uh, transparency and companies similar to that is not only in managing the total cost of care, but also managing the employee experience and driving the utilization of the correct virtual care offering. So how do these virtual first solutions impact a patient's relationship with his, his or her PCP, who is supposed to be a quarterback in care? So do we have some of these navigation entities or are they now competing with the PCP? Yeah, I think that we've seen a lot of these navigation entities, companies like Accolade, actually purchase virtual PCPs to try to compete directly with that offering. I think with virtual specialty care providers, what I've seen is companies actually specifically reach out to patients that currently don't have a PCP, so they have not had a claim for a PCP visit in the last year as a mechanism to not compete directly with the PCPs. So those are the two different ways that I've seen it as competing directly against the PCPs or finding patients that don't have a PCP. If I'm a patient and I'm attributed to a PCP somewhere, I have a relationship with a personal PCP, then this sort of ecosystem, is that now not available to me because my personal PCP may not be aware of this existing or what, what happens for me? For you, you would still have the ability to get the virtual care offerings, but there might not be as proactive outreach to you from the virtual care providers. And I think that this is something that's very much in flux and something that people are actively trying to figure out. I think a lot of payers have many concerns about physician abrasion with these virtual care offerings, and we're trying to figure out how to best work together to be able to deliver a, a seamless experience from a PCP to a virtual specialty care provider, whether that PCP CP is virtual or in person. So when you say physician abrasion, what does that mean? Payers don't want to upset their current network, which is traditionally very in-person. So they don't want the providers to believe that the uh, payers are offering directly competitive services. And we personally feel lots of questions around that specific issue of, is this offering going to upset our traditional OBGYNs? And is this something that the traditional network of OBGYNs or PCPs, for example, is this something that moving forward, maybe I as a physician need to become more aware of the services that this patient has available to them? Like similarly to if I'm a PCP, I should know what drugs are on formulary for this particular patient or I have to figure it out at some juncture. Maybe the same rules are going to start applying for patients who may have access to certain healthcare opportunities that their employer provides that I could refer them into. Do you see that on the horizon or is that asking way too much of an independent PCP or the local PCP who's employed by the health system? 
I absolutely see that on the horizon. I'm not sure what the timing will be of that, but we're starting to see the emergence of vendors that are trying to work with virtual first providers to get them directly integrated into the EHR. So that suggestion to that independent PCP could be made within their EHR at the time of consult and it's automatically surfaced to them and they can recommend that specific therapy, so to speak, to their patient. Although to a certain extent, that is competitive with some of these navigation companies who are basically saying, we're the one phone call, you know, call us and we'll navigate you employee ourselves. I can definitely see how there's a number of points where these different, the virtual first ecosystem is colliding with the traditional in ways that unless there's some pretty solid probably communication and joint buy-in and and everybody sitting around the table trying to figure out what the best way to navigate these patients are could wind up being abrasive, as you say. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I just want to circle back to this point because we have more and more people. We've got Lisa Sunan, we have Al Lewis, who are basically saying that virtual first is adding costs to the system, that point solutions don't really solve problems. They simply do for people things that they should learn how to do for themselves and then charge a lot of money for it. Like some of the the MSK, the musculoskeletal solutions that were darlings for a while, you know, they're sort of starting to fall from grace as their data starts to reveal that they're kind of early intervening into things that just would have gone away by themselves, even with no intervention. Obviously, there's a bell curve of of virtual solutions and some are better than others. But how does a virtual tool not fall into this just adding costs mode? And we, we talked about this a little bit before, but it's a serious concern that that is starting to get surfaced right now. Yeah, I absolutely think that you are correct. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of making sure that you're scaling the right patient to the right level of care and then appropriately charging for that care. So I think we are moving away from the days where every patient is going to get a $1,000 MSK therapy and that is going to be given whether they have you know, a pain score of four that would naturally go away on its own, to your point, or whether they have a pain score of seven and they're on their way to surgery. I think that what we need to do as virtual first providers is make sure that we aren't overcharging payers because that's a a long-term negative for our industry and that we are appropriately triaging the correct patient to the correct experience to make sure that the less acute patients can still get some sort of high-touch model, but one that isn't necessarily as costly as someone that actually needs that high-touch model to reduce that downstream utilization. And how does that reconcile with like private equity? If we're thinking that there's billions of dollars getting pumped into the healthcare ecosystem today by private equity and what their day job is, is to extract billions plus, you know what I mean? Like make a return on investment there. Then what that would mean is that you need, the healthcare system needs to support billions plus, right? There would seem to be almost as much of a perverse incentive to over-treat as fee-for-service. It could be a different flavor of it, but at the same time, if a virtual provider is saying, oh, well, there's only three patients in your patient population that we decided to reach out to because those are the only ones that we can reduce downstream costs, then I could see that there'd be a fear that the employer would be like, what? Like, you know, this is just, this contract is way more trouble than it's worth to save $8. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think virtual care providers have to be able to cover a large enough breadth, both members. To your point, you want to be enrolling a high percent of members, and you also want to be targeting a relatively high percent of costs that you believe that you're going to be able to generate a cost savings. And so I think those two are true of anyone that's pursuing the virtual care space more broadly. And then with regards to the private equity comment, I completely agree that there is the possibility for perverse incentives, and it's up to the virtual first space to make sure that we don't give in to those perverse incentives. And I think one way that you can go about doing this is have appropriateness criteria written into your contract that states very clearly who gets what level of care based on very specific clinical scenarios. The point being that there's a lot of room for improvement, let's just say, in the healthcare industry, even if people choose to do the right thing and do, in fact, provide appropriate care, that it is up to the individual to keep their moral compass about them and ensure that they're not over-screening, over-treating, just adding additional costs into the system when there's plenty of opportunity to make a fair amount of money not doing that. Correct. And I'd argue that that same issue occurs in both in-person care as well as virtual first care. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, what do you call a specialist? Maybe they could be considered a point solution as well. So, <laughs> so if you do have some of these point solutions that are, in fact, concerned about the entire patient journey, you know, maybe it's not a giant leap forward, but at least it could be considered potentially an incremental improvement at a minimum. Yeah, I completely agree. So talk a little bit about Visana. Visana is a virtual first provider focused on high-cost gynecologic conditions that lead to a lot of unnecessary surgeries like hysterectomy. And we provide virtual whole-person care. So we include things like diet and nutrition, pelvic floor physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. And our ultimate goal is to help women with these chronic gynecologic conditions improve their outcomes and ultimately reduce the total cost of care for our employers and payers. Where can people go to learn more about Visana or reach out to you personally should they wish to gain more information? Yeah, so you can check us out at visanahealth.com and you can email me directly at joe at visanahealth.com if you want to chat. Joe Connolly, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.